This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You're listening to a section of the LibriVox NaNoWriMo project, in which a number of LibriVox volunteers write and record a whole novel together, in serial form, during November of 2006. The project is based on the idea started by the National Novel Writing Month. Chapter 28 Written by Kathleen Gatliff, recorded by Kathleen Gatliff, of www.skippopscratch.com. Neely dozed at her desk and didn't notice the man's advance until she felt his sharp thump on the back of her head. She cried out and spun around, but it was only Corey, her immediate supervisor. He was an obnoxious couch potato, totally lacking in social skills or reasonable hygiene, and he had a crush on her so he wouldn't report her to anyone who mattered. She yawned and stretched. Corey leaned against her desk, slouched in a way that she knew he thought was seductive. It wasn't. Neely glared, but inwardly cringed. His daily attempts to flirt were the primary fuel behind her frequent Craigslist job searches. The problem with working for an insanely secret organization was that a girl had a tough time getting anyone to agree to be a reference. And she was required to say she worked, not for Global, before its cover organization, Jiggle Wiggle Spam Services. She couldn't get a car loan or even look her parents in the eye at Thanksgiving with that as her cover. She sighed, and Corey twitched his long, curly eyebrows at her. Yo sleeping beauty, he said. Word from the top, get it? From the top? Neely slumped and rested her temple in her hand. Maybe it was time to go back to graduate school. Corey, that joke's been made like, Thirty times already today, twenty of those times by you. Yeah, but this time it's true, so it's cooler. He smacked his lips. Yeah, so what does it want with us, finally? Corey leaned close. Neely scrambled back, but she could not escape the smell of dill pickles and onions issuing from his rancid maw. Do as you like, he said. Water, baby. Uh-huh she said, wrinkling her nose. You're gross. He sat up and grumped. That's a code word. You're supposed to know what that means. And you're supposed to know the counter code. I could write you up for this. Corey, I've worked here five years, and in all that time I've never had to do anything. I forgot the stupid codes, okay? There's only like one hundred of them. Corey stood up and pulled a tattered Hawaiian shirt-shaped post-it out of his front left jeans pocket. He read off of it, The Water Baby Procedure. Code word, do as you like. Employees should respond with, be done by as you did. Then they scramble the database pointers. All of them. Neely cocked her head. That's nuts. It's going to bring society to a standstill. This applies to everybody, not just me? Yep. I would not want to be an average Joe today. Corey pretended to scrutinize the card. Neely could tell he was a lousy actor before he continued. And it says one more thing. You should go out with me tonight. He leaned so close that Neely could feel his stubble graze her cheek. She pushed off hard against the floor, and her chair's wheels carried her across the cubicle. She slammed into her semi-ironic hang-in-there dangling kitten poster and could hear it crumple. Dang, she thought. That was vintage and in mint condition. She stood up and shook her finger at Corey. You know, if Global wasn't so damn secret, I could sue for sexual harassment. 
Corey sauntered to the doorway. He looked over his shoulder at her. You know you want me. He blew her a kiss and then was gone. Neely grabbed a can of air freshener and squirted it for a good thirty seconds in his direction, then pulled her chair back over to her computer. She shut down her MySpace page and her blog. She ignored the accumulated IMs from her friends, mostly bored low-levels at other secret organizations. She cracked her knuckles and opened the Water Babies interface. She had actually tried to read the story it was based on once, when she first started, and actually thought working for Global would be exciting, but found it too sickly sweet to appeal, even to her detached Pomo brain. She entered her passcode into the computer, and it responded by opening a database. There were millions of files there, arranged without rhyme or reason, and the only thing that kept them sensible was the millions of pointers. It was a terribly ineffective system, but when she tried to tell Corey that, he had barked at her. Ever think that maybe that's the way it's supposed to be? Guess so, she thought, because the one thing it makes easy is screwing it all up. All around her she heard the clattering of keyboards as the 500-odd employees of the Global Archive yanked their pointers. This can't be undone, she thought. If I do this, it's going to take decades to sort all this out. She shrugged, grinned mirthlessly, and whispered aloud, At least it's job security. She scrambled her pointers just as Nigel popped his adorable dark head over her cubicle wall. Hey! A bunch of us are going to the break room to watch the news and see what happens. Want to come? Now this was the kind of guy she would follow anywhere. The second great tragedy in her life, Global was the first, was that she suspected that he had a girlfriend. Sounds like fun, she said, and grabbed her cloak from the back of her chair before she hurried to his side. What's this all about, anyway? Nigel rolled his eyes. Some guy tried to get into the files, tried to wipe them or something, so Topps decided to take his anger out on the world. The first place affected was Herb's Max Power Natural Foods and Supplements in Duluth, a mere nanosecond before the rest of the world. There, amidst the energy drinks and protein powders, a locally famous personal trainer was stymied as he tried to restock his client's supply of energy bars. Why isn't my card working? he demanded. The young cashier, the owner's delinquent niece, took the credit card from the red-faced man. Maybe it's demagnetized, or maybe you're not swiping it right. I'll punch it in. She hit the keys on her register with long, lacquered blue nails and smiled reassuringly. It's going in now. She returned the man's card as her register beeped. She turned to it, puzzled. Now that's odd. I think it's saying your card is denied. She stared at the screen where a lengthy message scrolled. The man blustered. That's outrageous. I never carry a balance on this card. She read aloud in a hushed voice. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. What the hell does that mean? It's like a famous quote, isn't it? By Benjamin Franklin or someone like that. Well, what does it have to do with me? He asked. She shook her head. I'd better call the manager. It was hard not to laugh at the newscasters. Everyone from Neely's floor was gathered around the set as the frantic talking heads tried to make sense of the situation. Someone had brought over a bottle of whiskey, good stuff, and they were drinking shots. We think this is the work of hackers. Many, many thousands of hackers, said a well-groomed man on the set. His suit matched his touch of gray hair perfectly. 
His perky blonde co-host interrupted. What about terrorists? Could they have sabotaged us on such a massive scale? We're standing by for word from the White House. Meanwhile, the news crawl ran through a small list of disasters. Chaos erupted at the New York Stock Exchange when the stock prices were replaced by numbers in the Fibonacci sequence. Teenagers wept in confusion as their text messages transformed to Elizabethan poetry. Academics participating in an international teleconference on string theory found the feed replaced with a loop of video footage starring cats using toilets. The information technologists raised their glasses and whooped. Neely leaned close to Nigel's ear and said, We really shouldn't find this funny. He whispered back, I know. It's like being a nuclear weapons designer. You don't want your bombs to ever go off. But in a weird way, you do. Besides, no one's going to be hurt. Not really. Inconvenience, yes, but it's their fault for becoming overly dependent on the data. She turned to look into his face, so close to her own. His eyes were warm brown, and he had a dimple in his left cheek when he smiled. Neely felt giddy. Meanwhile, a girl from their floor, Diane, had jumped on a table in front of the television and was shouting for quiet. She had her cell phone to her ear and listened intently as she beckoned everyone to settle down. When they had, somewhat, she tried to explain. Watch the screen, she said, gasping for breath between giggles. Polly on second figured out that she had control of the news feed. She's going to scramble in two. Diane jumped off the table. Everyone got quiet. The newscaster, a handsome young hotshot, was reading off the teleprompter. It is believed that an unknown virus has infected the database of thousands, possibly millions, of computers. It is recommended that you take precautions and disconnect all media from any and all networks, twas brillig, and the slithy toves. He stopped, blanched, and looked around, wild-eyed, before continuing. Uh, we appear to be experiencing technical difficulties. Nigel whispered to Neely. He mispronounced slithy. It's supposed to be said like lithe. Somehow, this was so extraordinary that she grabbed his head and kissed him hard on the mouth. He did not resist. In the background, she could hear her co-workers screaming the words from the news crawl. I was a child, and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than a love. I and my Annabelle Lee. Life was good, Neely thought, as Nigel's arm settled over her shoulder. We're all going to heck, but it's going to be a fun ride. Fulvia felt ill. Her head ached, but also her stomach. Light and noise made things worse. She kept her eyes squeezed shut and her hands over her ears. She wanted to moan, but the vibration it caused in her ribcage intensified the urge to vomit. It felt like her thoughts and experiences were being wrung from her head. One of the other agents had warned her about this, in the beginning, about the microchip implanted in her skull. If she was no longer needed, or had disappointed Global in any way, it would toast her brain. Not enough to kill her, but enough to cause such excruciating pain that she would be unable to speak, or write, or indicate in any way what she knew or experienced. She would be a vegetable, forever, unless someone knew to look for the implant and remove it. But chances were good that even if they got it out, she'd lose a lot of functionality. Why had she agreed to this? She cursed her younger self. Why had she become involved in a group so wicked they would cripple their own agents? 
She remembered the day she got the rejection letter from Interpol. She was a fresh young graduate student, too fresh it seemed. The official reason was personality mismatch, but she felt that she knew the real reason. They had turned her away for being too nice. At the interview she had dressed carefully in a tartan skirt and a cream-colored blouse with a fluffy bow at the neck. Her former sorority sisters helped with her makeup, powder blue eyeshadow and neon pink cheeks. They twisted her hair up into a sideways ponytail. At the time she thought she looked chic, but in hindsight she knew she looked like a tarted-up teenager. When she was asked if she was prepared to kill in the line of work, she nodded, but added that she hoped it wouldn't be necessary. The interviewer's face didn't register any change, but she could tell he was disappointed. So she hurriedly added that she had no problem with killing, none at all. His eyes narrowed perceptibly, and she grew more flustered. Her responses to his remaining questions grew more aggressive, but she could tell that the man had already dismissed her, was just going through the ropes. "'Is this really what you want to do?' he asked, a curious inflection on the word really. She stammered in reply, and a quick flick of his eyelashes showed her they were done. As she left the building, she bumped into a dark woman in black leather who cursed and hurried away. "'That's what an agent should be like,' Fulvia thought to herself, cool and collected, and here I'm dolled up like a teeny bopper. She bought a new outfit that same day, a flame-red spandex catsuit adorned with steel spikes around the neck and wrists. She became an expert in mayhem and running in spike heels. She took up smoking to prove her daring. Interpol was a lost cause, but the folks at Global snapped her up in a second. She didn't care that they were evil. She only wanted an opportunity to prove her toughness. When they mentioned the implant, she laughed and shook her luxurious, teased mane. I'm not afraid, she said in a voice trained to be low and seductive. A jolt of pain brought her out of her reverie, and she flailed on the floor. The pressure in her head was increasing, but she felt at peace, able to reflect on her career at last. She realized that she might have been wrong about the reason for her disqualification. Maybe they could see how insecure I am, she thought. Maybe they could tell I was so desperate for attention that I'd strangle a basket full of puppies just to be told, job well done. That's the kind of thing that makes a person perfect for global. Someone touched her arm and she cried out. She wanted to reach out, to apologize for the evil she'd done, and take comfort in another's embrace, but she could not unfold her limbs. The person whispered. She could tell they meant to be gentle, but the sound tore through her aching skull like a bullet. End of chapter 28. Recorded on December 2nd, 2006.